On this episode, I'm in the room with Corey Hodges, lead pastor of the Point Church here in Salt Lake City and chaplain for the Utah Jazz. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 75. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley, and for those of you joining me for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. In the Room is my opportunity to have interesting conversations with authors, artists, professors, and pastors in order to learn more about virtually every topic you can imagine, all while giving you a chance to listen in. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and follow our Facebook page at facebook.com ITR. Today, I'm talking with my new friend, Pastor Corey Hodges. When we moved to Salt Lake almost three years ago to plant Ridgeline, I almost immediately began hearing other pastors talk about their love for Corey Hodges. As you'll learn, he's been pastoring here in our city for over 20 years, and few pastors have left a bigger footprint, not just in the Christian community, but really in the city at large. He's been tapped to serve in some significant ways politically. The Point Church serves in the city more than any church I've ever seen, and he's also the chaplain for the Utah Jazz. In our conversation, we cover everything from growing up in a ministry family uh, to being one of the very few black pastors here in Salt Lake City and how the Point Church has become the most ethnically diverse church in all of Utah. Corey has been a huge encouragement to me personally, and he's been a joy to learn from. So it's my pleasure to invite you in the room for my conversation with Corey Hodges. So to start, like, let's just talk about where life started for you. Like, where were you born? Uh, okay. It's very, literally, I very beginning. Life started for me. Let's yeah. see. In, in Bayfront Medical Hospital. Yeah. St. Petersburg, Florida. Okay. Yeah, 1970. Okay. I was born in 1970, born and raised, basically, Tampa Bay. Yep. Uh, but I, you know, St. Pete in particular. Yeah. Um, and um, that's where I started, born and raised, lived yeah. there. For 27 years. Okay. Both parents present through your whole life? Yeah. That's pretty unique. It is, man. Both my parents were present in my whole life. My mom and dad. My dad was a pastor. Okay. Um, My dad, uh, you know, until he retired. Yeah. My mom just recently passed. Okay. In uh, in September. Of just last year? Of this, just last year. Okay. And uh, yeah, I was kind of born and raised in church, Baptist. Okay. You know, on on the south side of St. Petersburg, probably... uh, um, middle class family, upper, yep. upper to middle class family. Um, my father was occasionally uh, uh, he was bivocational, uh-huh. so he worked at Honeywell. I don't know if that's oh, yeah. a big yeah yeah. Back then in the seventies, they were doing the B fifty two bombers and all that. Oh okay. So, so he did that. Part-time. Now they're doing thermostats. Now they're doing thermostats. <laughs> yeah, like it's like what, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, but, that was quite the pivot. Yeah, my mom worked for the city of St. Petersburg. Okay, so she retired. Okay, so so we were pretty. You know, I wasn't born in, uh, I guess, I guess it was in an urban neighborhood, but yeah. it was a black neighborhood. Yeah. So black middle class. Of well, so it's, it's an interesting, anytime you talk to a pastor's kid, I mean, you yeah. became a pastor, so it couldn't have been that bad, I guess. Right. But what, what was it like? Was it a positive, negative experience, a mixture of both for you growing up in that? Man, right. I mean, I mean, you know, at my age now, I look back, I say, maybe it wasn't so bad. I mean, but you, you, you had the fishbowl experience. Yeah. You felt like you were in a fishbowl. I mean, in some ways, um, it's a blessing because, you know, it gave me a foundation in faith and my faith. And yep. obviously, at first, it was my pop, my parents' religion. Mm-hmm. I had no, I had no desire to be a pastor. Yeah, uh, and then it became my own. But I don't think I had any bad, um, bad quote unquote experiences being a PK, other than just the normal pressures of, you know, people are watching you. You yeah. can't say stupid stuff. You yeah. can't do stupid things. Um, you never got like spanked by a random ch- a church member or anything. <laughs> well, I've heard some horror stories. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that has happened. Mo- That's probably twice. true of any yeah. kid that grew up in church, yeah. though. Yeah, like, you know, and then you know, in an African American context, you know, it's like a community there, right? Yeah. So everyone has permission to spank you. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, just you're lucky. You just sign a waiver in the children's ministry. <laughs> yeah. Anyone yeah. gets to smack your kid. You better believe it. That's the way it was, man. <laughs> when you think back on your parents and your relationship with them, what's what's one thing that you think you that you really took from both your mom and also your dad? Oh man, I didn't know these, these questions were going to be this tough. <laughs> you know, I think respect. Yeah. For 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 humanity, hmm. for people of all races, mm-hmm. um, stages in life, 
um, yeah, they were really big on that. Like, like you, you don't treat people with disrespect. You mm-hmm. respect everybody. Yeah. Um, so I had friends that ran the gambit, right? Like, you know, poor friends, well-off friends, white friends, black friends. They were welcome in my home. You know, so maybe it's part of the faith. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it was kind of the faith thing. But I just remember those values were instilled in me early to respect people. Yeah. And I've always tried to do that. Yeah. Um, I try to teach my kids that as well. Yeah. So when you think about growing up, going through your younger years and also into high school, and you think about everything that we're in right now as pertaining to race and everything, we had lunch about a month ago, and I yeah. loved, I want to ask you about some of the values you told me that you've worked to instill in your kids. Mm-hmm. But when you think about growing up, like what were you told about your growing up black in America? Here's yeah. what you need to be mindful of. Was that a, was that a, a source of conversation in your home or no? You know, I, I, I can't say that it really was um, like directly. Yeah. I, I mean, if I analyze the conversations now, maybe, mm-hmm. but there, there, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, Hey son, you know you're black, and yeah. this, is, this is this is these will be the consequences of yeah. your blackness or anything like anything like that. But I think just general conversation about how to treat people, mm-hmm. um, how to how to um, tackle adversity, mm-hmm. um, to never give up. Yeah. Um, you can um, you can accomplish your goals and your dreams with setbacks. Yeah, I, I don't remember it specifically being taught you know, setbacks because you're black. Right. Just setbacks in, in general. Yeah. Um, I was heavily involved in some sp- in sports and music. So okay. my parents pushed the music thing f- with me pretty pretty, pretty heavily. Okay. Um, you know, voice lessons, piano lessons, uh, you know, um, uh, participated in, in sports. I did football. Um, most of my, you know, school age, um, you know, until I got to high school, like ninth grade, and uh-huh. the music started to kind of take off. Okay. And so they kind of pushed me into that. Okay. So incidentally, that was kind of what I did before I started pastoring. I was kind okay. of like a worship leader. But, okay. So I don't remember in particular, Ryan, like uh, race conversation. Now, I, I understood and knew that I was black. Um, I knew that, you know, I had experience as a kid, you know, things that, that could have been attributed to racism or mm-hmm. bias. Um but it, it, those weren't kitchen table conversations. Race, okay. race was not. Have you taken a similar approach with your own kids, or did you feel like either you were in a different situation, you're a different kind of parent, or the world's just different, and so you had to have more direct conversations with your kids about it, or did you take a similar approach? I think I took a similar approach, actually, now that you ask me, because um, I never wanted to... I mean, I mean, if you're black in America, uh-huh. you got... The world, the world will teach you that. <laughs> no one has to tell yeah, you. Yeah, like, I don't think this has to be like in your parental manual. That's right. As a black dad or black mom. Okay. And not, not, and not that I'm criticizing black parents who are more intentional. Sure. About about those conversations. I'm just saying, I it didn't happen in my my house that intentional or that direct. Yeah. I don't think I taught my boys. I have three boys. Yep. Three African American males. Um, you know, and. I, we talk about race as it relates when it comes up. Mm-hmm. It's not part of my formula or anything yeah. like that. I, I mostly talk to them about being a man and being a human, yeah. being a good dad, being a good father, being yeah. a good husband, uh, being being a good big brother or a little brother. I mean, about life lessons. And then when when race issues come up, we have those conversations, sure. and we've had some pretty robust conversations about race. Yeah, but not because I'm like warning them. Because right. here's my thing, like. I didn't want them to like think of themselves as victims. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to give them any excuses mm-hmm. for not accomplishing their goals. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to hamper their um, inspiration mm-hmm. or or their um, ambitions. Yeah. Um, or give them any head start on being able to say, "Well, I'll, well, I can't do this or that because, because I'm yeah. black," or you know. So maybe maybe some people may criticize that. Yeah. But as a I'm a conservative. I'm yeah. a black conservative, and I've been all my life. But I, I don't know whether those are conservative values or whether it's just values that I passed, that I picked up from my, um, you know, from my from my parents, and just passed that along. Yeah. And my wife has been pretty much the same way. Okay. Um, so, I support I support those who have a different approach, and I wouldn't criticize them at all. Mm-hmm. 
I would understand that approach. Mm-hmm. I just didn't choose to do that. Well, and I mean, regardless yeah. of race, yeah. every parent's different. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and there's just right? different di- people take different approaches, yeah. have different convictions, and yeah. I think like I mean, one thing I'm done doing is reading a bunch of parenting books. <laughs> I did that for like the first five years, and I was just so confused about all these different ways to be a parent that I, you know, I think that's great. But I mean, you, so like everyone's having robust conversations about race now. Yeah. So when you think about you know, the conversations that you're having with your own friends or with yeah. your boys or with your wife, mm-hmm. when you look at everything that's happening right now, mm-hmm. what are you encouraged by? What are you concerned about? Yeah. Just tell me a little bit about what you're thinking about that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I have, I feel blessed, I mean, uh, to be one of probably not a whole lot of African-American pastors in, in the Salt Lake Valley. Right. So the, the recent events... Um, they have put me in a position that I never necessarily asked for. Yeah. But I do feel honored and I feel I feel blessed and I feel responsible in some ways to to be talking about it. Yeah. Because for people who don't understand, yeah. You told me, I think when we met you're one of maybe four African American pastors in the valley. Uh yeah. Roughly. It's more, it's more than four. Yeah. Me, meaning like uh Pastors who've been here for a long time. Okay. So four that have been here past maybe more than right. 20 years. And so what that means is, yeah. as anybody wants to talk about race right now, you're the one getting the phone yeah, call. Yeah, I'm getting the phone calls. <laughs> and like I'm saying, I feel I feel like, hey, you got to be the one. You, you yeah, know, yeah. You, got, you, you owe this, right? Yeah. And you've, to, been very, you, you've been very gracious yeah. about that with so many well, thanks, pastors man. in the Valley yeah. to be willing. Because, I mean, you know, one of the things I've heard from certain, and I, I, there's no, I'm not casting any shade. I sure. understand it to a, to a point, but there's some black pastors right now they're like you know what it's it's not we've written on this we've been talking about this right. it's not our job to educate you anymore right and right. you have been just very generous with your time to be willing to do that yeah i appreciate that yeah i, I mean that's the approach i've taken i feel like i feel like that i'm here for a time such as this so yeah. who am i to to you know shrink in that responsibility this is a god thing it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a moment that god can use and i want to be and then i want to be part of the solution mm-hmm. and then i have you know, through the, by the grace of God, develop really good relationships with my white counterparts mm-hmm. here in in the valley. So I, it would be wrong, I think, not to take advantage of those friendships mm-hmm. and those relationships yeah. in such a important time when we're having this national dialogue about yeah. race. So I mean, I mean, I gotta use those yeah those relationships for the positive. Yeah, you know. So I've been I've been curious about this with anyone that I can ask this question to because I'm I'm just still not 100 percent certain what to think about it, but. What do you think made the murder of George Floyd different? Because it yeah. was not like yeah. it was not the first time that this has happened. It wasn't the first time that it happened on video. What is it? COVID and the fact that we were all like captive at home, and so the whole world got to see this video at once. Was there something that was abnormally grotesque about it? Like, what do you think it was that yeah. led to? protesting and, and everything that's been happening now. Yeah, I think it was a trifecta, right? I think it was the, the recent videos of Aubrey, mm-hmm. the young black man in the park running. Yep. Um, I think, I don't, I can't remember the timeline. I just remember that there were three. Back to back to back. Back to back things. Right. It was, it was the Central Park Karen incident. Yep. Which I'm, I don't mean that in any disrespect. That's yeah. just the way it's been coined. Yep. Central Park Karen, where the black guy was bird watching, right, and then uh, I forget what happened and went first, yeah, and then the George Floyd thing, Floyd yeah. thing. So I think I think when you look at that combination of bam, 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 yeah, uh, the COVID, yeah. we were all losing our minds anyway, right? right? right. You know, let's talk about anything yeah, other than COVID. Yeah, anything other than yeah. COVID. <laughs> you know, we were all locked up, you know, literally quarantined, yeah. not yeah. like we are now. There's yeah. a certain amount of, you know, moving around now. Yeah. Uh, and then I think, yeah, I think, I think, Ryan, just the grotesqueness of that video. Mm-hmm. I think um, to watch that knee on the neck for that long, mm-hmm. uh, not seeing, because, you know, you always think about context. At least I do. Well, mm-hmm. What happened before? Sure. This, what, so you don't want to jump out in front of something and be wrong, of your perceptions be wrong. Yeah. Um, but you know the days went by and there was no other videos. There was no, everything we saw just kind of added to right uh, to that murder. Yeah. Um, and then there were some important voices that spoke up right away, and you know that you might not expect. And mm-hmm. There was there, there was a sense of uh, um, unseen unity, right? Yeah. With, amongst the races and 
there were there were a number of police off police uh, law enforcement groups yeah. that were quick to condemn yeah. what they saw. So I think um, I think it was all of those things. Yeah, like like combined together. It's kind of like the perfect storm, yeah. for lack of a better description. Yeah, um, uh, and and certainly I was one of those one of those people, one of those African Americans that, that saw that video, and my heart just is like, oh my gosh, this mm-hmm. is inexplicable. Mm-hmm. It is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It is uh, atrocious. This is a murder. Like, mm-hmm. um, I don't care if he was, you know, stealing, if he, uh, if he was high. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you, 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 you pick your, yeah, it pick, almost didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't matter. Had something happened no, beforehand. Right. Because it was clear that he was apprehended. Yeah. He was under the control of the law enforcement yeah. officers. Their life was not being threatened. In any way. But this guy was begging for his life, calling right. on his mom. Yeah. And so I think the inability to explain away what you were looking at yeah. for the average person of goodwill and decency. Yeah. I think that made this difference. Yeah. It was interesting. I think it was just maybe two, three days after that video went live, I was out to a sandwich shop with a friend and there were two police officers um, from Sandy that were in the shop, and I've always wanted to ask this, and I was like, well, I guess now's the time. And so I approached them at their table, and one of them was actually the chief of police in Sandy and another officer that he was with. Mm -hmm. And I just said, hey, uh, sorry to interrupt you guys, but I'm just curious, as law enforcement, when you see something like this happen on video, what's what's that like for you? And immediately, both their heads dropped. And he looked back up at me and he goes, you know what? It sickens the hell out of me because we don't, because we don't do that. Yeah. We don't train for that. Yeah. And it, and it, it just paints all of us yeah. as that. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, there was, it, it didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I wish, uh, you know, there is still a, a, a sizable group of people that don't want to see or don't see the problem, yeah. but by, but more than any time, at least in my lifetime, yeah there seems to be some unity around like there's a significant problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah. You know, I've been a part of some conversations here in the Valley about police procedures and stuff like that. And let me just say full-throatedly, I'm a supporter of law enforcement officers. I'm not getting on this bandwagon of defund the police and um, say what you may about it, but that's, and I'll, I'll, full-throatedly, I I support uh, our men and women in uniform. Yeah. Um, Because their job is needed, it's important, um, and yes, like any other job, there are, there are bad apples. Right. Um, uh, so I don't think it's a binary choice. I can't, uh, however, I don't think it's a binary choice. Mm-hmm. I don't think because I support law enforcement officers that I shouldn't hold them accountable. Sure. And so there's a balance there. Yep. And, and I think we've got to be careful not to be too far on either side. Yeah. Right. Like, 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 I mean, we have to support uh, our officers, our first responders who put their lives on the line every single day and yeah. they want to get home to their families and they have kids and stuff like that. At the same time, having said that, so does the black mom and the black dad. They have yeah. sons and daughters that they want to... So we can have this conversation without saying we got to pick sides. I'm, yeah. either, I'm either for uh, policemen, which means I'm against you know, Black Lives Matter, or right. I'm for Black Lives Matter, which means I'm a against the police. police. Right. And, uh, yeah. And I don't know, Ryan, man. I, I mean, I think as a black man, I have a responsibility to try to figure out how to help our country, and particularly my community that I live in and serve in. Yeah. I got to figure out how to help help us have those conversations right. without polarizing us yeah. to the point where uh, nothing's getting done. Right. There's no progress that's being made. Yeah. And so I hope I've been able to, to do that. So that's why I participated in some of the conversations mm-hmm. um, with the the law enforcement agencies who've asked me to, you know, invited me to the table. Yeah. You know, how can we make this better? How can we improve the perception? Yeah. I was on a call, not to ramble, yeah. yesterday about school resource officers. Okay. And that was a very interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, do we need to look at that and reevaluate that? And, and, and in the process, my point is, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about why they're there, what 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 what's the purpose of them being mm-hmm. there? What what are their limitations? What are their expectations? Mm-hmm. Are they trained? And what is the training? Yeah. Um, and so I was educated in that, and, with, and now I feel like I can go home, think about it, think it through, um, look at look at both perspectives perspectives, and then when we meet again, I can add some valuable conversation input um, suggestions. Yeah. 
as opposed to just being emotional. Let's just take all the, you know, resource officers out of the school. I mean, I want to make measured, um, data-driven yep. recommendations yep. and not just emotional, you know, outbursts and, right. um, and, and advice. Yeah. So We've objectively made a significant, over and over again in your years here, an objective investment into this, this city and into our valley. Sure. And so... How long have you lived in Salt Lake now? Twenty-two years, man. Twenty-two years. So I got. I want to know yeah. how in the world does. First of all, I've learned no one comes to Utah for like in a normal manner. Right. I think God just broke me over two years, and I was too right. tired to Where know did any you come better. From again? Where? Uh, Chicago and then North I, Carolina. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So <clears throat> I would love to just hear how did how do you go from what what tw- especially twenty-two years ago. Why on earth does a black man move from St. Petersburg, Florida, yeah. to Salt Lake City, Utah, mm-hmm. to pastor? Yeah. How did that happen? Man, I tell you, it was a strange journey. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, you know, so my dad was a pastor. So at 16, I accepted my call in the ministry, the gospel okay. ministry, preaching yep. ministry. I think I was 11th grader. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I began to work at my home church as well and went to school, went to Ecker College right there in St. Petersburg, named, mm-hmm. named after... After um, Jack Eckert, remember mm-hmm. Eckert Drugs? Remember Eckert Drugs in the East? I don't that was think a I big, remember that. That was a big okay. drugstore chain. Anyway, he had a he was Presbyterian, had a Presbyterian yep. school, blah blah blah. Went there. Business. It, Your undergrad's uh, business. Um, Eckert was a, it was a liberal arts college. Okay. And um, and I went for theology. That was your theology. Asking me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Theology. Yep. You know, just trying to get ready for that. And yep. then, I, then I took a job with um, our denomination, okay. Baptist denomination, mm-hmm. and I did some apprenticeships with some pastors in in St. Petersburg. Yep. And at some point, they were like, you know, Corey, you know, it's time for you to, you know, put your resumes out. Yeah. And um, you're not finished with school yet. You can finish wherever you go, but yeah, got some years of experience under your belt. And anyway, so um, one of my mentors uh, knew of a couple of churches. One in Chicago, believe it or not, okay, on the south side of Chicago, yeah. West Point Baptist Church, and uh-huh. one in San Bernardino, California. Okay. Um, New Hope Baptist Church. Can't yeah. rem- I still remember the names of the churches. Yeah. So I interviewed at, at those two churches, including my home church, who where my pastor had just passed away from oh, heart attack okay. at like 55. Wow. So I really thought I was going to stay. I was going to get that church, you yeah. know? So went to Chicago, preached, and it was great. And then my mentor said, well, on your way to California, mm-hmm. stop by Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to pastor there. There's no black folk out there, yeah. you know? You know <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm trained, and, you know, my my experience was the black church. So yeah. I, I, I'm not thinking any, any differently than that. Sure. You know, I'm going to get a black church. Yeah. You know, and, and and there it is. So when he says, "No, stop by Utah. It's beautiful." You know, mm-hmm. you know. And I was golfing at the time. Yeah. You know, oh man, you're gonna love the golf courses, and you know the mountains. Are, you know, so just yeah. stop by there on your way to California. And then you know, uh, there's a church out there in Salt Lake that just lost their pastor, and they need someone to fill in the pulpit for the Sunday. Right. So that that was the premise. Yeah, you got tricked. <laughs> Straight up tricked by punk. God. I was yeah, punk, That's right. right. <laughs> no, no, so I did that. Yeah. Preached here that Sunday, went to California, preached, flew from California back to Tampa, St. Pete, and um, I got a call from, at the time, New Pilgrim Baptist Church. That here. Now here in Salt Lake. Okay. That was, used to be the name of our church okay. before it was the Point Church. And they were like, hey, we really like you. I was 27. Mm-hmm. Just got, just been married, uh, maybe two and a half, three years. Okay. And I'm like, you kidding me? I'm, I'm telling you, I preached to maybe about 20 people, yeah. right? So I'm like, I got I got three boys, my, and my youngest boy was like six months old. Okay. So I was like, no way, I can't, they can't support me, there's yeah. no way I can take care of my family. I was like, I told them no. And we went and prayed about it, mm-hmm. and like, you know, like, man, I really want to go to Chicago, and I was doing the Michael Jordan era. Oh, yeah, heck yeah. Yeah, and I was like, we're going to Chicago, if not staying here at the home church. Yeah. Anyway, none of that really, we never really got released by hmm. God, and, uh, and God clearly said to me, you know, through comfort or through mm-hmm. peace, right? Yep. Yep. Hey, you should go ahead and do it. Wow. So go out there for two years, two or three years. Okay. Get the senior pastor thing under your belt. Mm-hmm. And then you can hightail the, you know, Chicago. Yeah, that's or right. Where, you know, wherever you're supposed Jordan to be. Jordan will still have a few good years Jordan, left. Yeah, in yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just go there and get your feet wet. Yep. Man, that was back in 1998. That's crazy. And it's 2020. 
So at what? So you you came into it thinking this is going to be two three years. At what? At some point you made a switch where you're like, we're in this for the long haul, right? Yeah, because you know the the, the boys got in school and, uh-huh. and the church started growing. We start getting traction. We start liking the environment, the mm-hmm. culture, the possibilities look mm-hmm. promising. You know, God was affirming some things in our lives. Yep. And, uh, I can't even tell you what the where the sweet spot was. Probably year three, four, five. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there, and then then it's like I'm not leaving, <laughs> like you yeah. know, unless God gives me some really direct, you know, you know, nudging. Um, but it definitely wasn't our plan to, to stay here 22 years. Yeah. But everything the church, you know, started growing, and and um, and we really made this home. You know, it was we we owned a home in Florida, mm-hmm. but this was our second home. Yep. Uh, our boys were relatively small, yep. so. We kind of made a life for ourselves away from family, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that kind of strengthened a lot of things for yeah. us. And um, you know, we, we love it now. I love it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I you know, I think I'll retire. Okay. You know. So what are, are do you feel like have have there been any unique challenges to being one of so few African American pastors mm-hmm. in a city now of I mean I think metro wise we're like two million something like that. Yeah. Um what what's that has that felt isolating at times or lonely for you at times? Yeah. Have you had good relationships from the beginning? I mean what's that been like? Well it, it's been a lot of loss. Yeah. Because you know like my African American pastor friends around the country, because I worked for our national denomination, I knew I had lots of Black friends who yeah. were preachers, and yeah. uh, I would go and do what in the African American experience called revivals. You yep. know, I guess you know, like camp meetings yep. would be the kind of the equivalent. Everybody um, gets saved. Again. Everybody gets saved again. Right. You know, you go and you preach for three days. Yep. Um, so I was, you know, there was a there was a comfort, uh, there was a circle of support, but I kind of lost being out here mm-hmm. um, because it's just not easy to yeah make those connections and. And then when we when our church switched from being all African American to a multicultural church, mm-hmm. um, um, those relationships were even further severed because yeah. my style of preaching changed, my context changed, mm-hmm. my understanding and view and perception of what church is changed, and mm-hmm. so so I lost a lot of that. Meaning those relationships, and when I say lost, I'm not saying that they're not my friends anymore. But, yeah. But clearly you can. They change. It just changed yeah. a bit. Now, locally here, it's the same thing. Like, you don't really have that niche, that network. Yep. And so I was uh, good. You know, thank God I was prepared for it because mm-hmm. my parents were so open. Yeah. And, 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 and they kind of um, encouraged diversity in our lives mm-hmm. as, kid, as kids. I was okay. I adjusted. Yeah. You know, so there weren't a lot of black pastor friends. So I met white pastor friends. Yeah. And I met, you know, Asians and, and um, Hispanics and you name it. And. I just, I I just thought in my in my own mind, hey, just just be friendly and yeah, you know, what's it? What's the saying? You know, to get a friend, be a friend. Yeah, or, you know, yeah. show yourself friendly, and that's what I did. But it's 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 not been easy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I'll be vulnerable. That yeah, there are times when I wish there was, you know, more diversity here. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as is black, it increasing black clergy. Uh, I don't know if black clergy is increasing. Yeah. I, I think um, because the number of black churches aren't increasing. Yeah. You know, quote unquote. And I wouldn't consider us anymore a black church. Yeah. Uh, because we have a significant amount of all white families now. Yeah. Um, like, you know, 25%, mm-hmm. 30% somewhere in there. Um, but I, I don't really dwell on it because that's yeah. not really who I don't identify myself that way every single day of my life. Right. Um, I know that I'm black. I'm yeah. proud to be black, but yep. I, I don't. I don't need to. I don't need it to be my lens every second of my life. Yeah, you know, I just try to be a good human. Yeah, you know, and a good, yeah. and a good pastor and a good yeah. father. And a, so, um, you were telling me that there was a there was so when you got here, you didn't come in casting this grand vision of we're going to be the most fruitful multi-ethnic church in Salt Lake City. Yeah. There was a point in time or a process that led to yeah. you guys making a conscious decision to we are going to become a multi-ethnic church, right? Am yeah. I, do I yeah, have that you're right? T- you're totally right. So, right? so what? Yeah. So then, just tell me about number one. What led up to that? What, like, how did your heart turn toward that? Mm-hmm. And then two, 
I think it always sounds really sexy to be multi-ethnic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. and the truth is, there's just a lot of churches just are not very good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the first church that I planted in Chicago. The first time we had a Hispanic guy come, I was like fired mm-hmm. up because now I could say we were multi-ethnic. <laughs> That's I think what most people consider. Mul- but that is here. I mean, your guys' numbers are you are legitimately extremely diverse here. Yeah. Yeah. So how how did you come to that decision, and then what has that required of you to lead that forward, all of you? Yeah. So on Redwood Road, before we changed our name from New Pilgrim Baptist, we were all black, historically black. So okay. seven black people founded our church. Yeah. So I came here, and um, and and this, there was a line of pastors before me. In 1998, I came, started my tenure here. Um, and yeah, I'm doing I'm doing what I knew, right? I'm, yeah. I'm doing the black preaching. You know, there's a there's an art. There's a preaching art form style called hooping. Oh yeah, in the African American, it's awesome. Experience. Yeah, which is kind of like at the end, <laughs> you kind of get that singing thing going on. Yeah, and yeah, you know, and that was, you know, that was how I understood and knew to preach. And sure, I mean, obviously, my mentors, you got to be well rounded, and mm-hmm. I thank God for that, right? And yeah, so I can preach different styles, but that was my main, I, that was my niche, right? Yep. my comfort zone. Yep. Man, after after three years of that, Ryan, the church is not moving, right? Nothing's <laughs> happening. Like I'm, I'm like I'm I'm, on, I'm I'm going on all cylinders, yeah. right? I'm I'm like pulling out every trick I know in the bag, you know. And then and then and then for two years, I had to be the worship leader as well. Oh wow! So I would play the piano um, for the worship, praise and worship, and mm-hmm. then I would preach. Wow! But I was 27, so yeah. I was you know a lot I, of energy. I was working out, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I did that for two years. But man, nothing was working. The church wasn't hmm. growing. Um, remember now, there's 07 percent African American. Yeah. So maybe it was growing, but it was just growing at the proportion of the percentage. Yeah. And then you had this ex- well-established uh, black respected pastor, Franz Davis, downtown, mm-hmm. who had already been at that been been there for 25 years by the time I showed up. Wow. So if 07 percent, he's you know he sold the market. You know, and yeah. then, you know my marketing degree says there's just the market was dried up. Yeah. Uh, so I began to pray, say, man, I can't, you know, this is not working. I began to pray, and God said to me one day very clearly, you know, I didn't call you just to preach to black people. Hmm. I called you to preach the gospel to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that convicted me. Yeah. Like, I'm like, whoa, you know, what just happened? And I went and told my secretary at the time, she was sitting in the office, mm-hmm. I remember like, like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, we, we're going to begin to intentionally diversify. And of course, that means all kinds of things yeah. that I didn't know yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, God began to show me what things I should do, and I began to read and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure it out. And and so, then came a series of changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Tim Drisdom, who was playing ball at the University of Utah, yep. he moved down here to play for yep. the from Calvary Chapel, yeah. right? Um, and you know, being 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 a part of Calvary Chapel High School. He was in a mostly white environment where they were singing Christian contemporary music yeah. and stuff like that. He was a musician. Yep. And so it's kind of like, again, the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And so immediately we started changing our music style or integrating our music style. So, okay. So we would sing the gospel hymns. Yep. But then we would sing like As a Deer, yep. Panic, and yeah. you know, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Yeah, yeah. You know those songs, oh, those man. great hill songs. Those writers are still getting rich <laughs> off those songs. I'm trying to tell you, man, you know, As a Deer. That's, yep, I remember oh, yeah. that. But and so when we start integrating those, you know, I start seeing you know diversifying. Then my preaching style, right? You know, I changed that a bit. You know, was, was that tough? It was really tough, man. Yeah. As far as identity preaching is concerned, or or, or just cultural preaching, um, it was tough for me because because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't able to grade how well I was doing. Because you mm-hmm. know, black preaching is about call and response. So yeah, I know I'm preaching good because there's a response. They're shouting coming, you down, right? Right. right. Yep. Amen, brother. That's right. You know? But if I'm lecturing, it's not it's not as more it's not a dialogue yeah. per yeah. se anymore. But 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 then I saw that one one big thing was also so music my preaching style, you know worship times right you know mm-hmm. you, you worship would you would typically go from eleven a.m. to about one yeah one thirty, so we cut that back. Mm-hmm. You know then we changed kind of the concept of children's ministry. Okay. You know in the African American experience typically and I'm generalizing yeah. so I don't want people to think oh well, all black churches that right. way. You know, typically in the African American church, your children would sit in the service after Sunday school, right? Yeah. You would, children would sit in the service with their parents, you know, and that's what we were doing for a long time. And then we started Awana, which okay, you know, yeah. which the kids were dismissed. Yep. You know, on Sunday on morning. On Sunday morning, yep. you know, we would, 
So all those things, you know, Ryan, kind of put us in a position. Those intentional changes mm-hmm. is the point I'm making made a difference. Yeah. And our church began to slowly diversify. And I was like, wow, you know, this is really working. And then we, um, the state bought the building there mm-hmm. on Redwood in 62 in, in Taylorsville, Utah. And we went out to Noah's out in, um, I think it's South Jordan, for a year. Okay. And I did a lot of changing cultural, um, organizational cultural changes okay. there. Just in our mindset, yeah. you know, like like I knew when we built a new church, I wouldn't have a pulpit per se with okay. chairs, and yeah. we wouldn't have a choir and a choir yeah. stand. So I took advantage of that transition period and made some more psychological um, um, changes in how the new church aesthetically, how it's going to look. Yeah. So when we moved here, we were further along, even in that transition and that transformation. Um, um, and man, we got here and, and the church really began to diversify hmm. like, and to grow. Um, and I mean, it's, it's too long of a story. Sure. Yeah. But those are some of the highlights, yeah. you know, it's very interesting to me how, just how God's woven your story up to this point, And that all the way back where we started with having parents that really impressed upon you, the importance of respect and diversity and how after all those years, yeah. you've ended up pastoring genuinely yeah. one of, if not the most fruitful multi-ethnic church yeah. here in the Salt Lake Valley. It's amazing. Yeah, I didn't say, you know, I'm very careful to, because I think any church who's making an attempt at mm-hmm. multiculturalism should be commended. Mm-hmm. But I think you said earlier, I know sometimes I, I do get a little, I don't know, what's the word, a little aggravated. Yeah. You know, when churches claim multiculturalism sure. because they... You know, they're all white and they got a black pastor. Right. <laughs> or their worship right. leader is black. Yeah. But I get it. Like, you know, but but like you're saying, you know, I want to help those churches that are trying to be more authentically multicultural. Yeah. You don't get to call yourself multicultural because you got yeah. two or three blacks. Right. Or we, you, can't, you we seemed... couldn't do that because we had two or three whites, you know? No, no. I mean, it sounds to me yeah. like you really approached the whole thing, like genuinely the way that a missionary in a foreign land would, and that you really decided, no, I'm going to change to fit this, rather than Mm -hmm. what a lot of predominantly white churches do, where they hire a black guy, and they're like, look, now we're really serious about becoming multicultural, and it's just not that simple. And I think think one thing I've learned from you, even just in our few conversations, is how much change it requires of everyone to genuinely be, like, everyone has to be a little uncomfortable all the time. We tried that too. Like we hired a white a white pastor from Texas. Yep. So he, you know he's gonna, he's, you don't get you don't get whiter <laughs> than a white guy from yeah, Texas. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and he had the accent. And, yeah. You know the, the, the Texas slang and all that. Nice guy. Yeah. And um, you know he's he's a year contract. I'm thinking, man, this is gonna be the panacea, right? Yeah. This is gonna be the silver bullet. Yep. And it just didn't work, man. Like hmm. you know you don't get this. You're not gonna get my white family just because I see a white guy on right. staff. And what changed it, Ryan? I want to make this point really quick. It was when we would start begin when we began when we began to be serious about relationships. Hmm. Do do I know my white families? Do I know where their kids are going to school? Can I name them? Do I know their names? Mm-hmm. Are they comfortable with conversations? Am I, you know, am I develop, developing authentic, organic relationships hmm. with the people in my congregation who are coming that don't look like me? Yeah, and yeah. I had to intentionally do that as well. Because I can point to black families. I knew their kids' names, hmm. all three of their kids or four of their kids, and I knew, you know, some intimate details about their life. But my white families, at first, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't doing a really good job of that. Yeah, not because of any, of any uh, prejudice or anything. It was just comfort. Sure, you know what I'm saying. And so, when I started deliberately going out of my comfort zone. To ask the second question, okay, oh, you, you, your friend, your kid's name are, you know, Bob, Jody, and Mike. Mm-hmm. Okay, where, where's Mike going to school? Mm-hmm. You know, what college is he trying to get into? Yeah. And, I, and, and, and my all-white families begin to respond to that. And Phil Hughes, who was, who was um, on our staff, mm-hmm. um, he said to me, because I was asking him, I was like, Phil, I'm getting these white families. They would come, you know, all-white families. Mm-hmm. They would come and love the church and, mm-hmm. like, want to be a part. They would stay for three months, and then they would disappear. I said, why do you think they're not staying? And that's what he challenged me about. He hmm. challenged me about, are you developing authentic relationships? And when I started doing that, I started seeing 
they were coming and they were staying. Yeah. Because Pastor Corey knows my family. He yep. cares about my family. And I think at that point, right, they didn't care that I was black. Yeah. It, it became a non-issue. Right. I'm at a church where it seems like my pastor knows me and he knows my family and my kids and he loves us and he's concerned yeah. about us. And I learned this, that was a big lesson for me as yeah. a human, right? Yeah, just, that's just huge. That, that at the end of the day, it really is about relationship. Right. Like, it really yeah. isn't about our skin color, and, you know, until it is. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, at the, at, the, at, the, at the most common place is two humans getting to know each other and, and uh, loving each other yeah. and having authentic friendships. Yeah. It is, I, it is interesting, like, that there is, it's certainly, there's been all of these other complicated issues around it that you've had to change and address and mm-hmm. grow in. But it seems like so much of what is written and taught on multicultural ministry focuses on those things to the detriment of being like, well, let's just talk about the most basic human part of this, which is, can we be friends? That's right. (laughs) And I I think that's very interesting that that was the thing that you had all these other things in place and fixed and right. And that when you made that switch, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what lit everything on fire for you guys. It's it's blown my mind. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like I, I, you know, people say, Corey, you should write a book about this. You should. And, and, my book would be pr- probably one chapter. Yeah. You know? like, be a human. Be a human <laughs> and, you know, love people yeah. and get to know them authentically. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, it, it really isn't about, you know, uh, you know, quotas. And, yeah. And you think about those things. Let me be honest. I mean, you yeah. think about those things. Sure. Like you you want to represent it in a way. I'm just saying when you are representing those things, make sure that it's authentic. That's right. You know, Yes, I hi- and you know Phil Hughes is mm-hmm. obviously white. Mm-hmm. You know I hired him after the first white guy, mm-hmm. but but the second white hire wasn't because he was white. Yeah, it was because he's the right guy. He was the right guy. Yeah, he, that happens to be white. Right. So you know, and, and, and if you look at it that way, yeah, you know it's better. And and I know that may seem a little like, oh wait, Corey, no, you're no, really, it was it was he was the right guy. He just happened to be white, mm-hmm. and that was a plus. And 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 the thing is. A multicultural church that's growing and trying to become, you have to talk about the hard, you have to have mm-hmm. hard conversations. Mm-hmm. So I have white staff members. I say, hey, like we have, we're in the series about race mm-hmm. for, for the last four weeks. Yeah. I call them up, Ryan, and say, look, you heard that conversation. What do you think? Mm-hmm. What was offensive? What mm-hmm. was uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. You know, but that's the beauty of being in a multicultural community, right? Yeah. Because you're in a position where you can have those conversations. Sure. I know the white families, the white people that right. I can call, and they're not thinking anything other than, hey, pastors really wants to know my opinion. Yeah. And, and then vice versa. Like, hey, you know, I'm struggling with this. We were in my office. I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. Um, th- a couple weeks ago, one of our white associate ministers or staff pastors, it was, it was a couple white families here, a couple black families, mm-hmm. and we started talking about white privilege, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's a big buzzword. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I, emotions just get really. Yeah, that's a, that's a quick way to oh, really, man, you, really you, blow you up a fight? conversation. Let's, yeah, let's talk about white privilege. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And when it came up in my office, I'm like, yeah. oh god, here we go. <laughs> but hey, at the point, church, these are like normal conversations. Yeah. And so, real quickly, like he was like, man, you know, when I hear that, this is a member of of a staff pastor. Yeah. Who I know is not racist. Yeah. I know he's not. He has none of that in his heart. Like yeah. that, you know. But we're in, he's in an environment where he can have. A safe environment where he can say, you know what, Pastor, you know, when I hear that, I, you know, it pisses me off because yeah. I, I, I'm white. I don't feel like anything was given to me. I don't feel privileged. You know, I worked hard for everything I have. And yeah. he went, you know, that was his heart, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he was, he was emotional. He was passionate. And, you know, and I heard him like, yeah, I was, I was in a position where I could hear, man, you know, and I thought to myself, man, I never really heard why white people are offended by that. Mm-hmm. This is my first time really hearing it hmm. from a place of passion yeah. from a person that I love. Yeah. A white guy that I happen to know is not racist. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, uh, the African-American family that was in here said, well, it's not about that. We get it. But this is what we're saying. This mm-hmm. is what that means. And um, and we, we, we begin to talk about that. Yeah. But my point is this. They were in a safe environment they were both in a relationship with each other. They were they go went to church together. Right. The kids love each other. Right. And now we're having this crucial conversation. Yeah. Passions are going back and forth. And then we leave my office and we both we, we leave my office and, and there's growth 
mm-hmm. and there's understanding, yeah. there's empathy, yeah. all that's been created, yeah. and then we go outside in the worship sanctuary and we worship together. It's awesome. I'm like, man, this is this is the way it's supposed to go. That's right. Like, um, both families were educated. Right. Both fa- families had legitimate, passionate feelings about the subject of white privilege. But there's no doubt in my mind that both families left better people. Yeah. Like with better understanding, with tools to have more productive conversations. Yeah. You know, and so that's what we're about. I mean, I'm I'm about facilitating that community. When we say a multicultural community, mm-hmm. that's what I'm talking yeah. about. And you can't you can't make this up, right? No. You know. No. So. And I know one thing that has made these conversations even more difficult is how politicized everything has become. And I actually didn't realize until today that how politically involved you've been in some ways. I was on your, like, do you know you have a Wikipedia page? I think, but I, I'm just as surprised as a lot of people. That's, oh, I thought that was awesome. You had a, so I was on your Wikipedia page today. As far as I can tell, everything is truthful on it as well. No, no bad stuff on there? No bad <laughs> okay. stuff, dude. It's all good. So you live by the sword, no. sword you die by the sword. <laughs> no, but I didn't. I didn't realize that. So you've been a member of it. Says the Utah State Ethics Commission, appointed by Governor Herbert. Yeah. Uh, you served on the initiative on Utah children in foster care board. Yeah. Uh, Utah Supreme Court judge appointed you to that. Yeah. Uh, you serve as the go- uh, on the governor's Olean Walker Board of Economic Development. So you've been just v- much more involved than yeah. the average pastor, and so. How how much of that was intentional for you, and then and yeah. or just came to you, and do you, how how politically involved is there a, a yeah. level of political involvement pastors should have? Just what are your thoughts about that as someone who's been very involved? Well, I could tell you this: I never chased any of it. Yeah, I, I've been a real advocate for staying in my lane, mm-hmm. not being distracted. My first and true calling is to God and to mm-hmm. Matthew twenty five, Matthew twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't involve social, sure, and political ideals and and values i'm i'm just saying the local church is the hope of the world yeah and that's my first priority yeah right i don't know how i ended up in some of those things yeah i i, I don't know like you know i used to do column for the salt lake tribune and that yep. just kind of just happened i was sitting in my office one day and i heard you call. got into a little little spat with <laughs> oh uh was it bill o'reilly yeah, that's on that's on your wikipedia page too <laughs> oh my god yeah that was probably the worst two weeks of my life i thought my life was over oh so sorry yeah, it was about that case the wrestler with the, yep. the step. anyway he's yep. got all i made the worst item of the day or something he was doing yeah but his show's off the air now so yeah. hopefully that's yeah i mean but most of that stuff just kind of came to me and uh-huh. um and even now i don't really seek it i i i, I do think to answer your question mm-hmm. You could do too much of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't. I can't be involved, and in, even with my doing the chaplaincy for the jazz, I'm very yeah. careful not to shrink on my responsibility to my people as a shepherd. Yeah. And when I say my people, I say that relationship, not ownership. Just. Yeah. Um, so there's a balance. I think mm-hmm. a pastor should take. I'm not the one to determine what that balance is. I'm just saying, for me, for me, I'm very careful not to. Um, yeah. To to to. Make that your main thing. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the main thing is the, my my call to this local church. Now, with that, other responsibilities come. You know, yeah. to whom much is given, right? Much yep. is required. And yeah, I just try to make sure I'm evaluating that often. Yeah, so that I'm not getting out of whack. Yeah, um, but yeah, pastors got to be involved in politics mm-hmm. on some levels. I, I think social justice is on some levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, poverty and disenfranchised and marginalized um, I think there are causes that the church needs to speak loudly on mm-hmm. and I just pray and ask God for wisdom as to which one of those issues yeah. deserve my attention right yeah. as a pastor yeah. maybe sometime I miss the mark but I'm always trying to um, pick the right ones yeah. with you know being led by the spirit so well as you just mentioned you are also the chaplain for the Utah Jazz which is something I think I mean I find very interesting and I'm sure a lot of people do so I think a lot of people wouldn't even know what that means so when you are a chaplain for a professional sports team like that what what do your responsibilities entail exactly yeah you know uh, it's a devo you do a devotional with the guys I mean it's the NBA is fascinating I learned a lot this is my second season okay um, and Pastor Jerry Lewis, who is mm-hmm. the pastor of 
the Point Christian Church, incidentally. Okay. <laughs> for 30 years. He just passed away of cancer, mm-hmm. long father cancer. He had been the chaplain of the Jazz for 30 years. Wow. So I didn't know a lot about the chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. And when I was asked, again, out of the blues, yeah. so, so somebody down there was looking at our social media page uh-huh. and said, hey, let's, you know, maybe this would be a great guy because they saw the diversity. Yeah. And, yeah, and so, and so basically the NBA is, I think, I'm almost sure this is true, one of the, one of the only professional sports uh, thing that have uh, sports franchise, uh, sports organizations, yep. professional sports organization that has a combined chapel. So if the Jazz is playing, for instance, the Houston Rockets, both the oh, Rockets. you all have chapel yeah, together. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's not co-ed. I, guess, I don't know what you call it, co-team. Yeah. Or, you know, I know the NFL doesn't do that. The yeah. MLB, they don't do their hockey. Okay. So this is very unique to that. Yeah. So I learned that, which is very cool, right? Because you get to see everybody and you can build a network. And mm-hmm. So um, so basically, you, get, you, uh, you know, six before the game, mm-hmm. there's a room designated where we do chapel. Okay. And I'm and I'm gonna limit this as to how much I can say about it. Yeah. Obviously for privacy sure. reasons, uh, privacy reasons. Yeah. But but the NBA is very supportive of that and it's awesome. Uh, is they're very like, um, yeah, they're very supportive of, of the guys having a place where they can express their faith and it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. And yeah. It's private. Uh, who comes? Who doesn't come? Yeah. And um, it's it's been really. It's, it's been a really, it's been a blessing. Yeah, it's awesome. It's one of those things that give me a break from the church. Yeah. And um, the guys are young, man. You know? So young. And, and so. I'm, so fi- so I'm th- finally hitting an age where, I, where I'm watching <laughs> pro sports being like, God, these guys look young. <laughs> yeah, man. It just hit me yesterday. 24. I was watching a game yesterday. I'm turning 40 this year. So I was watching the game yesterday and it hit me. Some of these guys are like around 20 years old. Yeah. I was 20. When they were born, and that I wanted to light myself on fire. It's crazy, like uh, that did not feel I, I, good. I understand where you're coming from. Like, <laughs> it's like, man. But I mentioned their age because, yeah. man, they have a lot in their on their plates. Oh, man. Some of them, and you got your vets, yeah. you know. Uh, but for most of them, it's a lot on their plate. I mean, just regular people, man, human yeah. beings that's having issues, and or they just want to express gratitude, or just want a moment of to, with God before a game. Yeah, or, you know, there's 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 contract. Decisions, their yep. families back home, and huge sums of money to have to huge manage. Huge sums of money with. to manage, and happiness. You're trying to yeah. find happiness, and sometimes you don't find it even with all that money. And yeah, just life stuff. Yeah. And so I've I've been honored. You know, I, you know, I feel blessed to be able to be a resource for those guys. Yeah, and it's it's been one of the one of, one of the joys of my life. And yeah, I never imagined it would be this joyous. And and yeah. like I'm not there for anything. I don't want anything. I don't yeah. need anything from them. Yeah. You know, I'm not looking for money. I'm looking, I'm not looking for a hookup. I'm not yep. looking for tickets. I, right. You know, I really feel like my ministry is to be there for them. Love that. And that takes a while for them to trust you. To I trust you about yeah. that, man, because um, yeah, I actually we and you know, I'm, really the reason we ended up in Salt Lake was because of a conversation with an ex NFL player who went to my church in Chicago. Yeah. It's one of the first members of our church. Eddie Williams uh, came in his first year, played fullback for the Bears. Oh yeah, you told me. Yeah, yeah. and we got to baptize him. Had to get a bigger baptism because he was just massive. But um, I learned through that relationship how just how unique of a season it is. Yeah. I think both of me, I mean, I played football in college, but to be uh, a, like a, especially a high-performing collegiate or pro athlete is just such a unique yeah. experience. So um, what, have you, what have you really learned uh, that has been the most important in ministering to and loving and building relationship with this very unique segment of people. Yep, I've learned that I've, it, it's been very uh, humbling mm-hmm. because when the people come into my church, the Point Church, mm-hmm. it's all clear that I'm the pastor and mm-hmm. I'm the lead pastor and I'm the guy. Yeah, right. I'm the you know whatever. There's a level of honor that level comes of with honor that. Comes yep. with, when I walk into that arena, they don't care they who don't care. I am. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I have to earn that. Mm. And that has been very humbling for yeah, me. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, you know, and, and I mean in a good way. I, I, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed having to earn that, right? Yeah. Secondly, consistent, like be consistent, man. Mm. You know, um, you want, I, I've learned that trust, building trust in relationships mm-hmm. is about being consistent. Because mm-hmm. everybody wants something from them. You better believe it. Yeah. Everyone is looking for something. Even their friends, families, That's right. everybody. That's right. Yeah. And 
where is this space and place where yeah. I come and someone's trying to give me something mm-hmm. other than like money or yeah. playing time? Or, yeah. And I've learned to just be consistently there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not not all the guys will come to chapel, mm-hmm. but they're gonna know, they know that I'm gonna be there at every home game. Mm-hmm. They know where I'm gonna be sitting. Mm-hmm. If they need to talk to me, they can. Mm-hmm. So one of the thing I've one of the things I've learned is the importance of consistency because I've seen that in these two seasons that you know consistency matters. Yeah. Uh, and then secondly is trust. Yep. Which kind of everything kind of builds on the other, right? Yep. Um, I can trust this guy. Yeah. Um, I can be forthcoming with what I'm thinking about and what I'm struggling with and the importance of trust. So I've, I've learned that. Um, that's what I learned about me. What I've learned about them is that they, they, um, they're just regular human beings like mm-hmm. everybody else, you yeah. know, that happen to be athletes, right? Yeah. And their problems are just as, they're, they're, they're real and they're regular yeah. <laughs> problems, yeah. you know, and, doesn't matter that they there some of them are millionaires or yeah. financially secure. Yeah. Um, they're human beings first. Yeah. And, and I think that gets lost in the sure in the shuffle sometimes. Yeah. Well, they're celebr- treated like products most yeah. of the time. And they're celebrity. You yeah. Know? And and so I've learned that you yeah. know and and it's a great lesson that to, for me to have learned. Yeah. Uh, because um, I want to come alongside them. Yeah. Understanding those yeah. things that are so important. All right, Matt. Here's my last and most important question: How do you think we're going to do in the playoffs this year? <laughs> you, you like, so you, Start you, are Monday. you asking me to prophesy? <laughs> yeah, like, please like, man, speak it into I don't existence. Oh man, I mean, you know, you know, we're the the COVID initiators, right? Know. You know, so we we been... ruined the NBA. And I, I feel <laughs> yeah, like we shut better. down America somehow. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know, but I will tell you this: the 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 uh, jazz, the Utah Jazz organization, mm-hmm. is probably one of the one of the finest organizations I've ever worked for. Oh, that's awesome! And um, it's led by wonderful people mm-hmm. and people that really value um, their players, um, and and they really promote decency and um, and respect. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I've been very proud to be a part of the team, that's Utah awesome. Jazz team. Um, and so I'm hoping that that will get us into the playoffs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> somehow, somehow yeah. that would translate into. I can tell you, I know they're trying really hard yeah. to get that ring, man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know. We got. We, we, I think we got some great talent. We so totally do. Let's see. Yeah. No, let's let's see. First round for sure. I'm betting. Yeah. If I was a betting man. All right. Good. I'm betting first round. Well, yeah. my my uh, my theory on you, just to close on why God has entrusted so much to you is largely because you don't care in the best way, meaning that you've not pursued. I, I think we're, we're living, I mean, there's, you know, ministry, like books written to ministry people about how to build platform and how to gain influence. And you, you moved, especially based on the tribe you were a part of, the denomination you were a part of, the culture you were a part of, you came to literally the most unlikely place imaginable to pastor 20 people at the time (laughs) and just said yes to God. And it seems to me, as I've listened to your story today, you've just continued to do that over and over and God just keeps going, all right, I can trust this guy with more and more and more. And so that's a tremendous example to me. Uh, It's a tremendous example to uh, all of us who have the privilege of pastoring in this valley. And it's awesome to be here for me personally at this point to be able to, because you've been here for so long at this point, to come along and to be able to be, you know, I think, I think, unfortunately, I've been in church planning long enough to know a lot of church planners come into every city and they're like, we're here to start a movement. They, all their marketing stuff is like, like there's never been another church in that city before. So I think especially this second go around, I've wanted to come in and be more Aaron or be more Joshua than Moses, like to be able to hold up the arms of and encourage the people who have been here serving so long. And every single person I've ever talked to about you praises the faithfulness of the way that you have loved this city and your church the whole time. So it's an honor to be able to talk to you and uh, to continue to learn from you. So thanks for doing this. Oh man. Yeah. I I don't know what to say with that. I mean, other than thank you, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to, that's the perception. And, and I'm going to say, Ryan, thank you for, you know, for asking me for this interview, you know, it's pretty, it's, you know, I hope if I said something wrong, there's plenty of time to no, pick man, it apart. No, great. But uh, yeah, I, I'm just grateful and thank you. And, and you certainly have shown yourself friendly and 
Um, I, I, I hope that, you know, the, the friendship builds. I'm, I'm here for that. Um, and because I'm going to, you know, soon be, you know, riding off into the sunset at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, younger guys like you can kind of carry that torch and that, that, that baton on. I, this is a great city, and we need, we need guys like that. I, you know, just in closing, I just, I don't know. I just try not to take myself too serious. Yeah. That's kind of my mantra, like my life mantra. Corey, don't don't take yourself too serious. You're just a small part of mm-hmm. a big thing, you mm-hmm. know. And and you've been blessed that God has used you. And I just pray. I, I would want everyone to pray that I can continue to try to stay humble and not just false humility, but yeah. but just try to try to just take it one day at a time and not take myself too serious and and do my part while I'm here. And I hope I've been successful doing that. Thank you for the opportunity to, to, to for this interview. And, uh, if there are any critics, oh well, you got it now. I've been speaking from my heart, and I feel like if I'm speaking from my heart, that's the safest place that's I right. can speak from. So, that's right. Thanks, my friend. Yeah, appreciate you.